Welcome back, everyone, for the next episode of Three Mics and a Mixer. I hope all of our listeners had a great turkey day. Just the listeners, though. Not, <laughs> not, not you, Alex. Not you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I was, John was giving me devil eyes as he said that. Um, yes, turkey day was wonderful. Um, Alex, for the record, I do care about you. Thank you. I, I uh, sometimes really need to hear that right before bed as I cry myself to sleep, John, just thinking of how much you bully me. Um, we'll take that offline. We have us here, Josiah Daniel Gray. Josiah, it's wonderful to have you on. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, you mean J.D. Gray, right? He goes by J.D. I figured for the first uh, time introducing him, it's, it's kind of a regal uh, thing to have a, a first and middle and last name that you say all at once. I always wish people did that to me, you know? Matthew Alexander Cordopita. Thank you. Isn't that great? Or signing your name with the first letter and then your name, like M Alexander Cordopita. It just seems so professional. Do you do that? No. That would be a little pompous. You, you got to be an author maybe first. Yeah. Now, JD, one of the aspects of your name, like I feel like there's always two different spellings of gray, right? There's G-R-A-Y, G-R-E-Y. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's a, it's a tough world to be living in because I think Fifty Shades of Gray has corrupted my name. Uh, the EY starting to infest the country and them paired with the British. Uh, I think it just says a lot about your character. If you're going to spell it with the EY, gives you a little sneak peek, you know, what, what are they watching? I don't know. Yeah. When I, when I think of 50 shades of gray, that's the first thing that bothers me really. Mm-hmm. Yep. So only thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, JD, a little bit about, about you yourself for the listeners. Um, you grew up in Gross Point, Gross Point, Michigan, which is a Detroit suburb. GP, it's a place so, to be. So, obviously, you drove Fords, GM cars, all of the above, right? You know, Sally, not. Uh, first car was a Nissan. Uh, my second car was a Toyota, and then I drove a BMW for a little bit, but never drove American. Kind of just betrayed my city. All this, the way. So. This is why Detroit is, people say it's in shambles, because JD is not buying American-made cars. It's the sole reason. And actually, Detroit's on the up and up. It is. It is. It kind of bottomed out a while ago and had no lower to go. Give and me then, give me like the 30-second uh, the sales pitch. The sales pitch is my mom eats lunch downtown with her friends. And that's something <laughs> that would never have happened when I was in high school. So you know it's getting better. I uh, visited Detroit senior year of college actually and we like went around the little ice skate rink and oh yeah campus area. marshes yeah that place is pretty cool they have little tents and everything yeah yeah it was kind of cool it's cool it's nice downtown big tree smiling people hipsters all over the place it's a sign of a thriving economy you know i had this plan in eighth grade uh with my friend group to basically buy a whole block of detroit because you could get houses for like two dollars or something like still that do that oh my gosh so so here's the plan john jd get in on this you buy a block you build a fence around it, right, to keep all the ruffians out. You plant, you know, your own garden. You convert an old house into a church. Basically, you build your own commune on the cheap. Anyone uh, anyone in on that? That'd be fun. Can we invent some new, like, special doctrines to follow, too? You know, make it a little cult? That's a great idea. Wonderful. Would you be our cult leader, Alex? Oh, I'd be happy to be. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know I would, actually, though. <clears throat> anyway. Back to JD. I think you were giving a oh, proper yes, introduction, yes. John. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you, you you went to, you grew up in Michigan, but then you went, you left Michigan to go to Vanderbilt, where yep. I assume you studied something computer related because now you're a software engineer at Capital One. Yep. Yep. Vanderbilt anchored down, uh, baseball champions, football losers for sure. But uh, 
no, I studied computer science there uh, with a minor in business. Loved it the whole time, but um, I didn't come in doing that. I came in, I was going to do math and econ because I wanted to do investment banking. So I thought that's what you did Ooh. if you were a savage. And I talked to some people and realized that that sounded absolutely terrible and quickly shifted out of that. But You know, I was talking to uh, a friend a couple weeks ago who was in investment banking and worked so often that there was a period of three weeks where she didn't step outside once and her roommate had to deliver her groceries and cook her food for her. She probably paid her like a stipend, like a maid or something. I mean, can you imagine? It's a good thing you didn't become an investment banker, Yeah, I mean, this is really validating my decision. I don't think I would make it in that. Being a software engineer is very posh. They don't work you too hard. You're signing off at 5, more more like 4.30, honestly. So if someone wanted to join this posh profession of a software engineer, what would you... What would you recommend the skills that they have before entering into this field? You know, ideally you would be in high school and then you could decide to major in computer science. That's probably the best way. But if you're already in college, <laughs> I think of that? committed to your major or an adult, um, you could honestly probably just do a coding boot camp. And additionally, Capital One actually has a program called CODA, which is something for Capital One Development Academy. That's what it is. And they take non-computer science majors into this program. They pay you a, a software engineer salary to learn how to be a software engineer for like six months or maybe it's six weeks. I don't know. And then once you learn, they hire you as a software engineer. Yeah, it's like a pretty that, sweet that's program. A, that's a great... Uh, is that why you, that's why you're, why you're on this podcast, right? Is to plug the program, talk about how great it is. Yeah. Officially, I'm not allowed to say the slogan. They told me that in, uh, in training. So all I can do is... Uh, have you apply with my referral code? That way I get the <laughs> <laughs> referral you can, you bonus. You sign up the slogan once you're in the program. Just watch any football game. I'm sure it'll be one of the commercials. So Perfect. Yeah. Well, you know I'll never be doing that. So uh, I'll never learn about this referral code. Man, it's tough. So one of the other things I noticed here on your list of points about you, you have five siblings. Yeah. How did you survive? Um, you know, not bad. Honestly, I learned pretty easy if I just yelled mom really loud whenever two of my other older brothers like looked at me, I could usually not get beat up. Um, but it was pretty good. It was, it was, it was a bad a doggy house. dog world. Yeah, it was, household. but I figured out how to survive. And then as we get older, it's a lot more fun. I'd say my oldest brother, I was never close with until like I was an adult and we could mingle again. But my other brother, Josh, who's only like two years older than me, we were really close in high school and um, I wasn't the best older brother to my sisters in high school, but we're a lot closer now. So, <laughs> Do you have an anecdote you want to share there that you said that with much guilt and remorse? Uh, you know, there's just times you're hanging out with your friends and your sister wants to be included and you're just kind of mean to them. You yell at them, leave me alone. Da, da, da. You, know, you got the teen angst just bubbling up in there, trying to prove yourself, establish your identity. What would be your advice to anyone who has younger, younger sisters specifically that you've learned from your, your wizened age? Um, you know, cherish the time you have with them. Like, I wish I could have as much time as I have with them when I was in high school. Grow up a little bit. Quit being such a baby and, like, think about someone besides yourself. Be a good older brother, you know? Yeah, that be the advice. That, that's actually the Three Mics and a Mixer podcast slogan is, grow up, don't be a baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great slogan. I think uh, young JD needed to hear that, yeah. So your sisters, you're an older brother, you're an older brother to them. What about your relationship with your older brothers? Yeah. Yeah. So my oldest brother, like I said, we've gotten a lot closer since I've gotten a little more grown up. 
He uh, he lives in Gross Point, and he's a musician actually. Really? What so instrument? he's got a nine to five, but he has he's a singer songwriter, and he's got a band member with him who's a guitar player. And so they're like putting out some songs. No and way. So after we're like, like active on Spotify, you want, plug, you want to plug your brother on this podcast? Uh, yeah, MYB is the name of the band. They're on Spotify. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan. Their songs are pretty dope. So we're just waiting for them to you know get discovered or whatever. They play local gigs and stuff, so they're having a good time and. So when you say he has a nine to five, that means he he works another job, but on the side he makes music. Yeah, like that's his passion. He loves making songs, and uh, he and his band member Scott Posada, just like yeah, they're really good together, and they've made some some awesome music. So MYB, check him out. That's amazing. And uh, your your other brother, this is your next oldest brother, probably can't have a career nearly as cool as that, could he? No, you know he's just a Navy SEAL, so it's not that cool. But um, <laughs> no, he's really awesome. He's always been kind of the best of us, like hardest working kid, absolute grinder, type of kid that was waking up at like six a.m. before high school to like work out and like run like a psycho. Um, so we ended up going to the Naval Academy. And then when you're there, they choose like the top percentage of the class to go off to SEALs. Um, so he got chosen for that after he graduated, went off to BUDS, which is like the SEALs training. Um, and then he actually got married while he was in BUDS. So his senior year of college, while he was home for Christmas, my parents set him up on a date with my oldest brother Bryce's wife's best friend. <laughs> Also from oh Gross Point. Gosh. So Josh and Molly go out for coffee, but all the coffee shops are closed, so they get a beer. And they hit it off, had a great time. So they did it long distance the second half of his senior year. And then after he graduated, uh, he proposed that summer. So like fast. <laughs> Speedy. Speedy proposal. I think it was like five months or something they were dating. You gotta. If you're going off to, uh, to boot camp and yeah. whatnot. And then they set the wedding date, and it was supposed to be before Bud's. They were going to be married. But then after they set the wedding day, buds got moved up. And it was like the wedding was now in the middle of the buds. So we had to get special approval to like fly out for one weekend to go get married. So we flew out from San Diego to uh, Michigan. And the wedding was a couple hours outside of uh, Detroit. Got married. And they both flew back to San Diego together. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. wild. <laughs> Do you, but you like don't have a home in buds, right? That's just like you're, you're at that camp like day in and day out. Yeah. Right? So it's actually interesting. Uh, there's a big divide in any military community between the officers and the enlisted. And so if you're an enlisted person, you're in the camp, right? And the officers, which if you like come out of Naval Academy, you come in as an officer, but you're still doing buds, right? But you're just kind of like, you're like just a step above all the other guys doing buds. And it's actually worse because they expect you to run everything, basically. Um, by run everything, I mean the logistics. So the instructors, all they do is show up and haze you. And it's up to the officers who are in BUDS to, like, fuel up the cars, like, make sure everyone's got the schedules right. And so, but the one perk he gets is he doesn't actually live on the base. So he, he would just have to get there at, like, 5 a.m. and he would come back at, like, 10 p.m. or whatever. <laughs> get to, like, see his wife for a couple hours sleep <laughs> and, and get out of there. That and is wild. Do you have weekends at the Naval Academy or no? The Naval Academy sounded like the worst college experience ever. They're just grinding the whole time. Like whenever you're not in class, you got some sort of training, some sort of like parade exercise they have to do. And he's like, and Josh is, he's always been a grinder. He's an extremely intelligent guy, but he's been the guy who like puts in the hours. So Josh was just either working out, studying or sleeping basically the entire time he was there. And you get the weekends off. 
Um, but like he's studying, he's like a college student basically. Does that go for buds as well? No, buds is, uh, you know, they sometimes would get the weekends off, but sometimes they're like training the whole time. Uh, that must be, I mean, as a, as a newly married couple, that's gotta be really tough on the wife. And I remember you telling me he has kids now too. I mean, how does that affect their family dynamic? Yeah. So I think when he was coming out of Navy, he was super excited to go into SEALs because those are the people that like see the action and you really want to make a real difference. Um, but I think since he's been in training, he's had his first like half deployment. They do a half deployment for three months. Then he comes back and then he does another point for six months and he's doing that in like four months. And now he's got two sons. He's married. And I think he's starting to be like, do I really want to be away for six months? And even when he's home, like they send him off for two weeks training here, two weeks there. And I think he's kind of tired of being tossed around a little bit. So um, when you go to Navy, the Naval Academy, you have mandatory five years of service and he's got a year and a half left of that. And he probably, it, I, I don't want to speak for him, but he might stay in, he might leave, but I think he's probably leaning towards leaving after that. So what are the like what are the job opportunities, exit opportunities after a program like that? I feel like SEAL is kind of the top of like you're top of the game, but you're not like working on spreadsheets all day what what like yeah. the rest of the world expects you to do. Yeah. I mean, especially as an officer coming out, you can probably do whatever you want. Like anyone wants to hire a SEAL. Like any sort of business, like operations, like I know there's like hedge funds, investment funds that only hire Navy SEALs. No way. Yeah. Really? I've got a buddy uh, who's at Baylor and his older brother was a SEAL. And then after he left, he joined this fund that only hires SEALs. And like while he was at the Naval Academy, he got like a standing offer. He did computer engineering. So at one of his like fairs they were doing, someone from NASA was there and was like, I just had a PhD fair and they had the exact same project as you. Here's my card. When you're out, give me a call and you got a job. No way. So Wild. You can, he can probably do whatever he wants job-wise afterwards. Um, if you don't want to go into like private sector workforce, um, you can be a military contractor, which um, like if you've heard of the Benghazi thing, those are the people involved with that. The military will contract out. I think it's called BlackRock or Blackstone or something. And they basically go do missions. It's almost the same as the normal military, but there's less support. So they are private contractors. They get paid a boatload, but they're like putting their lives on the line, basically. But they're not technically in the military. I feel like any modern war movie I've seen has had the, the contractors, right? Yeah, probably. Maybe not Black Hawk Down, but there are some others for sure. Yeah. So these job opportunities that you get exiting as a Navy SEAL, it's not just a PR stunt then for the companies. They're hiring you, what, because of your grit, your resilience? They know yeah. you're intelligent? They know you're legit. They know you're hardworking. They know that you can manage people, be efficient, and be excellent. That's like the motto of the SEALs or the SEALs in training during BUDS is they say it pays to be a winner. So you're always competing against the other guys in BUDS. And whatever team like finishes in first will get like a little bit of bonus. And so you just got to – you got the mindset to win and be successful, and they know that, so – they want you to bring that like intensity. Yeah, it's like an episode of Survivor, but actually real. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to know if there's ever been like a seal on Survival. That would be so funny. I bet he get voted off immediately because that would be so. He just tries to keep him. his uh, <laughs> keep his uh, employment a secret from everyone yeah. else. Hear me out. I was just like <laughs> an, an episode of Survivor, but with only seals. Oh my god, that would be so cool. <laughs> my uh, family grew up like watching the. Like the buds training, like documentary series. Those are intense. They haze so them intense. hardcore. 
And what I didn't know is, so a lot of kids quit, obviously, men, I should say, just because it's so intense. But a lot of people just get hurt. Like, you hurt your knee, hurt your ankle. Uh, and they won't kick you out. They'll say, like, okay, we're rolling you, and you can come back once you're healthy. But some people go, they make it almost, they get hurt, they have to roll back. And some people will do it, like, six times, and finally they're like, I can't just, like, do this forever. I guess I can't be a SEAL. Sheesh. Or you're like, I can't do this. I need to find a way to honorably discharge myself by breaking my right. leg so i can keep that nasa job offer <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah josh made it through his first time actually which is pretty rare that's great just like cruise right through and like killed it they got the guy's an animal so <laughs> do you what like what learnings have you taken in kind of your you're not in the military you're in an engineering like software engineering job what have you learned from his experience and watching his experience that you've been applying to your life today? Yeah, I think the biggest application, and this was even when he was at Navy, just because his college experience was like so much harder than mine or anyone I knew, just like to not feel sorry for myself. Because like <laughs> Josh has had it so much worse, like he was working so much harder. Um, and just to know that like you almost can always be working harder and doing more. So, like, if you started going to add to, like, oh, and you're kind of being a baby, being a little lazy, it's like Josh is out there grinding his butt off, like, serving the country, maybe, like, it's almost a challenge for myself internally. Not in, like, a competitive way, more of, like, an inspiring way. Josh has been a huge mentor to me, like, my whole life, so. So, as he's had a family and gone into the Navy SEALs, has his faith evolved, and has that then, in turn, evolved your faith? Yeah, his faith has actually been very challenging to me and honestly my whole family. So we grew up going to like a non-denominational kind of Baptist type church. Um, and that's like my spiritual tradition. That's my founding. That's how I was introduced to Christianity. Um, and same with Josh. But um, after he graduated, about a year after he graduated college, he converted to Catholicism, which like kind of threw us all for a loop-de-loop because the way my dad was raised, Catholics weren't Christians basically. And he's softened up a little bit since then, but, uh, and I just, I never even thought about Catholicism. I've always just been like, oh, they're kind of like a works-based religion that is corrupting Christianity and never gave it a second thought. But when your like greatest spiritual mentor and almost the man that you respect most, like does something like that, it makes you look into it. So, um, I think because he converted, uh, it made me take it seriously and I've been doing a lot of looking into it myself. And actually my oldest brother, Bryce ended up converting as well. So now both my brothers wow. are Catholic. The dominoes are falling. <laughs> and uh, my mom is actually thinking about converting. And so it's definitely caused a lot of us to look at it with a different light. And I think just uh, a more open perspective because my mom was pretty close to it before because I just kind of assumed they were wrong. Um, but I've been, I've been surprised. I don't know if it's pleasantly surprised. It's almost unpleasantly surprised, like how reasonable everything I've been reading about them is, which it, it is pleasant to know that, but... Um, it was just surprising. Like I didn't disagree nearly as much with the Catholics as I thought I did. And the things I did disagree on were like not as important as like the, I don't know. When you say like convert to a Catholicism, it almost sounds like you're changing from one religion to another. Yeah. And when we're all under it, when everything's kind of under the umbrella of Christianity. So what does that look like? Yeah. So what it looks like, I guess a better word for it would be like becoming a member. Like, he became a member of the Catholic Church. Um, And so my perspective uh, is definitely that Catholics are Christians. And um, not everyone who identifies as a Catholic or even anyone who identifies as a Christian really is taking their faith seriously. But um, I believe if you're, like, a Catholic taking your faith seriously, you're you're definitely a, a Christian for sure. 
what is one or two of the beliefs that you are most surprised by in terms of uh, how Catholicism actually had merit? Yeah, that's the end of my question. Yeah, no. Um, I think a, a smaller one, which may be an easier segue to a harder one, um, is the intercession of saints. So that's the belief where a lot of Protestants will be like, oh, Catholics pray to the saints. Why don't they just pray to Jesus? Like, they're putting an intermediary, basically. They think they can't talk to God. Like, that's why Catholicism is so bad. And that was my understanding of it. Um, but when you really look into it, it's called the intercession of saints for a reason. It's because they're not praying to the saints. They're asking the saints to pray for you. And so the challenge that Josh gave me was like, wouldn't you ask dad to pray for you? Wouldn't you ask me to pray for you? Like, you ask your community of believers to intercede on your behalf when you're going through something. Um, the saints are not dead. They're alive. They're in heaven. And they're outside of time. So it's not like they can't handle everyone's requests. They're not even in time anymore. They're in heaven. So they're still able to pray for you. And how much better can they pray for you since they're like, ideally, like probably more sanctified than anyone on earth is. So um, it was just challenging me. And I was like, wow, I totally misunderstood that. And actually, that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, why wouldn't I ask someone in heaven to intercede for me? And right before you kind of started this story, you mentioned the idea of like, you always thought Catholicism was, you know, a works-based religion. Has that framework changed for you? Yeah, so that's probably the more important one to tackle because what you hear is, you know, the cry of the Reformation is faith alone. Catholics are faith and works. So they believe you need to, like, earn yourself to heaven. And I basically thought that Catholics thought you got to the judgment gates and they thought that God would, like, weigh out your works against your sins. And if your works were higher, that's how you got in, which is just totally not their theology at all. Um, their theology is, is, it is faith alone, which was surprising me. What they condemn about it is belief alone. So like intellectual assent alone. That's why they say faith and works, um, because to them, faith almost is a work. So I think any Protestant is going to agree with what James says, like even the demons believe and they shudder. You can't just believe. I'm doing air quotes. Obviously, you guys can't see that. Um, there has to be... Your actions show your faith, right? And so it is much more similar to like what I already believed than I thought. The only real difference um, that I found when looking into it is the once saved, always saved idea. I think a lot of Protestants would adhere to like, once you're saved, like you're good, you're saved forever. And Catholics wouldn't adhere to that. So that is a key difference. And that's something I'm still looking at, still wrestling with. But it's definitely not a like, workspace faith that that once saved always saved teaching though isn't ubiquitous necessarily across all protestant yeah and that's that's true either like there are things there i thought that like everyone agreed protestant wise and turns out no one agrees on anything you can't even say protestant as a word because there's almost no agreement on a lot of the core issues well that's what's that's what i find compelling about catholicism is that there's one governing body um and a centralized source for truth right you have so many uh, Protestant churches just veering off in wild directions and evolving their beliefs very rapidly as culture evolves because there's not a centralized source of truth. Yeah. Essentially, whoever the you know council of elders is at that church, or even just the pastor, basically sets the entire theology, which can be good or bad, right? Yeah, depends how well they set it, right? Yeah. And what I see more often in our culture is like, even if they're out of church with good theology, if they don't like it, they'll just leave and find a different church with more undefined theology. 
So like most, I don't want to say most because I don't really know, but it seems like most churches aren't defining their theology specifically in bad ways. But some churches, it seems like, are purposely vague about things that they shouldn't be vague about. Um, that allows people to like go to that church, say they're fully agree, but have like a wide variety of like stances on like important Christian topics. I guess all the more reason to like be have a have a clear statement of faith and have that central central authority. And I and I'm curious what Catholics think about like the Reformation. I know Reformation was a time of change for the Catholic Church as well. Yeah, um, has that kind of changed your outlook there? For sure, because I also assumed that. Catholics were basically just living in denial about how evil their church was at the time. And I was surprised to see that in all the writings, they acknowledge it. One of the stats I thought was interesting is only a third of popes are like considered to be saints. I just thought they thought all popes were Jesus, basically. So they recognize that mm. like, we've, we've had all these evil popes that have been terrible and have abused their power. The only thing they really claim is that no one has changed the official doctrine for the worse, right? So when they look at the Reformation... They say in their documents, like, yeah, it was bad. Like, there's a reason this happened. Like, the Pope was abusing authority. Everyone was abusing their authority. Like, indulgences. Most of the clergy, like, were just basically being rulers. Like, people were lukewarm. So they acknowledged a lot of the faults. And I was, like, pleasantly surprised to see, like, some of the humility there. Um, but. Well, so you've been doing all this research. You and I have sent some articles and videos back and forth. Yeah. What's holding you back? Why have you not yet decided to convert to Catholicism? And is there anything that you're really struggling with currently? I think the key thing, I think this is what it should be for everyone. And which is why I'm, I'm surprised with when people haven't like considered it in this way is the idea that what Catholics say is Jesus made Peter the first Pope and he made the apostles have the special authority to be able to define doctrine. And the intention was that this authority would be handed down. So the buzzwords for that are like apostolic succession and papal supremacy, right? And if those are true, it really doesn't matter what you think about anything else because Jesus established it this way, so you have to like do it. So for me, I'd really want to be convinced of those things. And since it was so long ago, it's kind of hard to find like, uh, I guess, a consensus on those. Um, I just read this super long book on the history of Christianity it's called Christianity, the first 3,000 years. So it starts like 1,000 years before Christianity. And I was hoping yeah, to get... I was, I was doing the math <laughs> in my head. I was like, it doesn't add up there. <laughs> I was hoping to get some insight on that. But I think to me, those are the key issues because everything else, if those are true, if Jesus established this special authority that's not for you, it doesn't really matter if you disagree with the authority because it's God's authority, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there have been very real consequences of that belief, I think, throughout the Catholic Church's history. I mean, for until very recently, masses were done in Latin, right? And a, yeah. lot, of, a lot of Catholics, to my understanding, are not... Um, they're not really encouraged to think critically about the issues on their own. Like it's it, within Catholicism, it's not as ubiquitous to do like Bible studies or really dig into the word yourself because the governing bodies have all the answers, right? It's not up, up to us to really discern truth. Um, it's up to just up, up to us to just listen to what they tell us to do. Yeah. And I think there's, there's pros and cons there, right? You can say that's the downside of it, but then you can swing the pendulum to the Protestant side see the downsides of telling people it's your responsibility to discern truth and realizing that people will discern truth in all sorts of ways, you know, and they'll come up basically with whatever theology suits them. Um, and they'll do it 
fully with the greatest intentions, but would just come up with like a, a new like idea. Yeah, but is it, is it better that people would have the, I guess, free will to choose what they think is, is true about God and to like receive, if you receive the Holy Spirit, then in theory, you should have the ability to discern truth and to go in the right direction if you're like examining scripture. So is it better that some people would fall away in the wrong direction because we have this uh, need to discern for ourselves? Or is it better that a governing body decides and the majority of the congregation is apathetic? Yeah. Maybe there's not one right answer to that. But Yeah, I think that's that's a key question. And and I, I think one of the things here is you you see some of the the structure of the church break down when you have when you talk about apathy. I think one of the biggest I think common concerns from the Protestant side is that they look at Catholics and they're like, oh, they th- it seems apathetic over there. And I'm sure that if you point to the apathetic people on either side of the aisle, right, there's going to be you're going to see a breakdown in how the church is structured, right? Um, the idea of um, you know, apathetic, apathetic Protestants means that if people are kind of entrusted to read the Bible on their own and you're apathetic, you're not going to read the Bible on your own. The issue with um, apathetic Catholics is if you are kind of kind of told to passively ex- just listen to authority, you're going to go your entire life without really double checking and examining the beliefs that you claim to have. So I think we that's where we see not to, like to be the modern in the room here. That's I think where we see some of the breakdown of the mo- uh, of the model each side. And, you know, you can judge a tree by its fruit, right? And I would be interested to get the statistics on, like, the different denominations in the U.S. and how the numbers have been falling or rising depending on the denomination in the past 67 years. Um, Well, what's interesting is the Pentecostals are consistently the highest number of conversions, like, year over year. And I think most people who bring up you judge a tree by its fruit generally don't agree with much of Pentecostal theology. Oh, that's a really interesting <laughs> statement. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you think of the churches that are massive, these massive mega churches. I don't know if like they're like big following. I mean, think like a church like Joel Austin where he's preaching the prosperity gospel. Like sure, that's going to get a lot of people interested, but is it really the truth? So maybe the fruit that we should be considering is not necessarily numbers. It's not qu- quantity but it's quality it's i would say the numbers you should be looking at if there's some way to examine the percentage of the current population of a church that is quote-unquote devoted versus quote-unquote apathetic i think that's where we get to that that statement i think growth is maybe a bad bad framework to look at it yeah and i think when i think of apathy in the catholic church i think of like lukewarm catholics who like don't really believe anything that they're supposed to believe when i think of apathy in like the more like Protestant evangelical era, I think of like the liberalism of Christian doctrine and how like so many modern Christians are just kind of deciding to believe what they want. And like, whether you want to call that apathy or I don't honestly think for the them it's not apathy. They really believe this is like the new way just because the Bible says this, it was just written in a cultural context. And I just see a master version from, from truth a lot of times. Yeah. And those are, I mean, those are challenges that we need to be like standing up to and really um, discerning for ourselves what is truth. This goes back to, again, Protestants being able to to make their own truth, right? I've been sent a couple websites recently that make a biblical case for, you know, X, Y, or Z thing that yeah. Christians don't traditionally support. 
And I'm going through them and trying to reconcile like, okay, does, what does the Bible really say about this? Was Were certain verses only, you know, historically relevant? So I think regardless of whether or not you decided to stay a Protestant, JD, or become a Catholic, there's a huge need for people like you who are digging into the word and digging into truth and being a leader in their church community. So I say, if you want to become a Catholic, go for it because they need you over there just as much as Protestants do. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I said to Josh when he was thinking about it, because I was like, you know, it can't be bad for them to have Josh over there with them. Like it's, it's probably good. They probably need him. Um, But just to the idea of defining your own doctrine, my last comment is just like, is that really a good thing? Because the fruit of it seems to be that like, People define it the way they kind of want to define it. And they do it with like true sincerity. They just come to different conclusions on like important issues. I think that was one of the things that drew Josh to Catholicism is like their stances on like social issues and a lot of like hot button issues are like pretty firm and pretty not changing. Whereas like the wave of American Christianity is people kind of changing a lot of things. So, yeah, well, I, I feel like his, not rigidness, but his work ethic, his service in the military is that of a personality which would be drawn to Catholicism, right? Because it has a lot more structure than Protestantism. Yeah. Yeah, true. I think there are a lot of Protestant churches that basically believe the same thing as the Catholics, which I didn't realize, um, with exception to the importance of the sacraments, which is like another big thing. I was about to say, what are your thoughts on regenerative baptism? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another thing too. So there's all these things that I took as basic Christian truths growing up. And when investigating church history more, there's a strong case to say that like, that really is what the early church believed. And it's really us that changed it. We could have changed it for the better, but it's not like they are changing it. A lot of the differences between like a standard, like Baptist theology versus Catholicism, it's like the differences are the things that Baptists changed which I still might agree with, but it was kind of a paradigm shift. So I'm undecided on regenerative baptism, but it's not like a, a novel idea. I don't see it as anti-scripture in any way. And that's what I've come to like a lot of the different things. It's like, sure, I may feel one way or the other, but like there's nothing about believing in regenerative baptism, for example. To me, that's like clearly wrong by looking at scripture. Yeah, a lot of people would say that Catholic, a lot of people, me, I would say that a lot. <laughs> Very uh, humble acknowledgement uh, yeah, there. Yeah, I was trying to be yeah. similar. <laughs> you know, I, I've found from the Catholic beliefs that I have looked into, I would say they're extra biblical, right? It's not like they're anti, anti-Bible, anti but sometimes they read a little bit, in my mind, too much into the text or assume things. For example, you know, assuming that people can, can pray for us in heaven, the saints can pray for us. Like, there's nothing in the Bible that says they can't, but there's also nothing that says they can or that they should be, right? So, you know, in my mind, it's extra biblical in that way. Yeah. There's extra biblical things that all sorts of churches do. I mean, like modern worship, raising your hands in worship, like all sorts of stuff that if you were really trying to get pure biblical, you'd probably be Church of Christ. That has no, no, hit, no instruments in their services. Um, they actually believe in regenerative baptism, which is interesting. But yeah, there's just so many different things and everyone's trying to like be as right as they can. And it seems like there's this pressure on Protestants to be like super Protestants, basically. Like there's the side of being an apathetic Catholic, but then there's a side of like a Protestant's basically expected to figure everything out. And is that really a realistic expectation for everybody? Um, Maybe not. 
And, and I think overall, this entire conversation, I would be suspicious of anyone if they take the belief that they held and the, deno- the denomination that they held growing up and didn't investigate that and didn't re-examine it and say, hey, are the beliefs around you know infant versus adult baptism, is, like larger level Catholicism versus Protestantism, are those beliefs that I believe, not just my parents believe? And I think there comes a time that I think it, it's appropriate for most people to at least look into that and examine it. So I think I think you're on the right track, JD. And I think yeah. keep doing what you're doing and keep exploring truth there. Yeah. Well, we hope that gave you a lot to think about, folks. We're going to take a brief intermission. Please enjoy this Napoleon Dynamite soundtrack while you wait. We'll come back in a few minutes with some maybe lighthearted topics. We'll see. Maybe Sounds even good. heavier. Who knows? Oh. <laughs> All right, welcome back. So I think the next friendly, lighthearted topic that we'll have for today is Calvinism versus Arminianism. Not, I don't think really this topic's ever been discussed before in the history of humanity. There's no way. Yeah, I think we're the yeah, first one. The first ones. I think we could That's figure right. it out. We can define those terms. In fact, you just made them up on the spot, and we will define what they mean. Yeah. yeah. I'm just feeling like I'm feeling like a field of flowers, specifically tulips. <laughs> T-U-L-I-P. Alex, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Or, or, or we're putting Alex on the spot. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Alex on the spot. Well, who's, asking, who's asking the questions here? <laughs> <laughs> it's now my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. JD, I don't even know what tulip means. So um, I'm realizing on this podcast how much I have yet to learn about theology. So why don't you give me an education, JD, on Calvinism and tulip? All right. You know, I wouldn't call us an education. We'll call it more of like a spark notes, JD style. Uh, don't quote me on any of this, but uh, TULIP is an acronym for the five points of Calvinism. T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And P is preservation of the saints. And a quick definition of each, total depravity uh, means that uh, you can do no good apart from... Uh, God, apart from Jesus, apart from the saving work on the cross, humans are completely lost and can do nothing good. Um, unconditional election would be um, kind of another word for predestination that God determines who will be saved, uh, I guess, regardless of their own actions. Limited atonement um, is the idea that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was only for the elect, not for everybody. Irresistible grace is the idea that if God offers you the grace of salvation, you will be saved. Um, and the ones who are not saved are the ones who have not been offered the grace of salvation. Uh, there's no, I guess, you don't have a say in it. And preservation of the saints um, is another way of kind of saying once saved, always saved. Once someone receives the gift of the Holy Spirit and becomes a believer, they will persevere to the end and they will be in heaven. Um, so basically, uh, that's kind of a quick summary. A lot of them are kind of similar. God, I gotta say, as, as I didn't our, define them very uh, specifically, so I didn't use the right terms, but that's the gist. You know, as someone who is an Armenian, those all sound like the same point to me. I'm just gonna throw it out there. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I will worded say differently. is that the, whoever was in charge of Calvinism really got the marketing down. There's no, there's no fun five points of Arminianism that spells a, a pretty little flower. I don't actually think I know what Arminianism is. Free will, Did, baby. Oh, free will. There we go. There we go. Uh, 
Which so, is actually the Catholic side, so you're leaning a little yeah, Catholic let's there. Go, You know what? I lean more Catholic than I care to admit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think if we were to talk about one of the points, uh, I wouldn't consider myself to be overly Calvinist. And I think the point that to me is the most glaringly wrong, the one that seems the wrongest to me is limited atonement, um, which is the idea that Christ did not, in fact, die for everybody, but just the elect. And it, it's a logical conclusion of the previous points. Um, irresistible grace, meaning that like, and unconditional election kind of together, that God kind of chooses who's being saved and you don't really have a say in it. Um, and it is a logical conclusion of God's sovereignty. And if you look at the scriptures primarily through a sovereignty lens, you can see how these five points are developed. But to come to a conclusion that actually belittles the sacrifice on the cross, to me seems to be going against the point of God's sovereignty and power. Um, I don't know. If Can you explain how it belittles Jesus' sacrifice? That was a little extreme, but the, the point is that Jesus didn't die for everybody. Right. Just for the elect. And his sacrifice on the cross was not universal. So his blood, quote unquote, does not cover all sins. It only covers the sins of, of the elect. A, a segment. And that would imply that there's some limitation to the, the grace of God and to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You, you know which one I actually tend to disagree with? And this may be somewhat heretical. I disagree with the first point of Tulip. Interesting. <laughs> Total depravity. Hear me out on this one. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna... shaking my head. No, no, no. Hear me, out, hear me out. Let's so, hear it. okay. If God didn't exist, right, and nobody was to believe in God, then it would not be possible for us to do good because... All, all of our actions would be subconsciously selfish. Even if I'm doing good for another person, maybe it's tit for tat, I'm wanting to gain something in return. Um, this sounds like total depression. No, no, continue. no. Hear me out. <clears throat> if you are of the belief, however, that there is a God, um, or even if you're, even if you don't think there's a God, but you view others as if they're created in the image of God, right? This is, this is how a lot of non-Christian people act. They behave as if other people have inherent worth. If there was no God, if you didn't believe that, you would not believe people have inherent worth. And so you're just going to act for selfish motives. But I know non-Christians who inherently believe that other people have worth, even though it doesn't make sense for them to, right? Because atheism is true in their minds. They believe that humanity collectively has value and therefore it is in their best interests to care for other people because we have collective value right and that is a very christian idea but i'm my point is you don't necessarily have to believe in god to do good i i think i think i don't think anyone believing in total depravity would disagree with you but I think this is where your definition of total depravity comes into play. And I'll pass it over to JD to yeah. explain what that means. This is where you got to get really precise. Because uh, there's a Catholic Answers article I read. That's just the website they have with these articles. But um, the title of the article is Depravity, Yes. Total Depravity in Quotes, No. So most Christians are going to agree with 99, 90% of what total depravity is. The fact that like we can do no good apart from God. The disagreements come in when you get down to the dirty details and like the strictest form of Calvinism, total depravity leads you to a point where there is no free will. God operates the will even to the point of God operating the will for sin, which is only, I think, what the most extreme like Calvinist perspective would be. But that is like 
the most strict part of total depravity, which I actually think most people don't agree with. Um, and then there's the idea that just Christ's grace could operate in someone who's not saved. So that would be a looser thing where someone would say... Where it's like, I mean, I guess the concept of common grace, right? Yeah. The fact that there there is through the beauty of the world, through um, the inherent kind of instinctual value that we have in other humans, that there is possibility of for, for good in people. So it sounds like my views are not so heretical after all. Yeah, you good news, good me. news. <laughs> yeah. We're actually going to turn this podcast into where we take your views that you think are edgy oh and gosh. potentially heretical and we show you that they're actually right. Right, and we invite guests on the podcast that we think might be heretical and we oust them to the world. <laughs> yes, <laughs> genius. Burn them at the stake. Welcome, JD. <laughs> Man, don't talk about burn at the stake. That's cutting too close to home. Reading this church history book, we burned a lot of people. <laughs> Basically, if you were just like the minority somewhere theologically, good chance you got burnt. We, we being oh, Protestants no. or Catholics? Anyone. Anyone. If you were the minority, you could just get sacked somewhere and get burned. Living back in the day was not chill. I One thing that is really interesting, though, is to see how, like, humanity's approach on, like, what truth is and, like, how, how closely to safeguard truth with, like, the idea of, like, truth is so valuable. I do not condone break the state, but... Truth is so valuable that you would burn someone at the stake because you care so deeply about the truth and, yeah. and what is and what is. And true. even on things that seem almost trivial to us now, because nowadays truth is so unvaluable. We live in like the postmodern culture. Some people don't even believe in the idea of truth, and truth is really only important for like a couple things, right? Like the main core things. But like compared to back in the day when like most people were Christian. Truth was like very, very important, almost too important, arguably, if you're burning people. But, uh, you know, you bring up a great point there, John, though. A lot of people who criticize Christianity point to the Old Testament and say, well, God seems so harsh then, especially to the Israelites and consequences. Like a lot of sins would get you banished from the community or would have very real punishments. And I, I just respond like, the communities around the Israelites were doing human sacrifices and had all all sorts of incredibly depraved uh, ideas of morality. Oh, and so yeah. you have to basically, in summary, you have to run a tight ship when you're dealing with the ancient world, yeah. right? People were absolutely wild back then. And if you're not going to like very quickly deteriorate into worshiping Baal and cutting children's heads off and pouring the blood down the oh, altar, yeah. right? You've got to run a tight ship. Like, and that's that's why all these arbitrary and seemingly harsh laws existed for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Yeah, like some of the laws that seem really harsh to us now were actually very gracious back in the day. You read like if someone's caught st stealing, chop their hand off. To us, we're like, that's extreme. But the way it worked back in the day is if you were stealing from someone who was rich, they'd kill you, they'd kill your wife, and they'd kill all your kids. So it was a law written so that you could do no more than chop their hand off. So mm -hmm. at the time, that was like a gracious sentence, whereas to us, it seems like extremely barbaric. But Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of the Old Testament laws, it was like a maximum penalty. Yeah. And that's something that's not commonly discussed. John, you look a little sick to your stomach. No, I, I, I'm just I'm trying to figure out how to pivot this conversation <laughs> back to Arminianism. I guess you had to have free will to steal, right? That's right. That's right. Free will. So, so you said how, you're, you're a free will guy. So, okay. I, in order to be a Christian, I have to be a free will guy. 
Because if free will didn't exist, then that means that God is literally creating people who are going to be condemned to sin, who are then going to be in hell for eternity. That is not the kind of God I want to worship, right? Sorry, but like, why would you create a being to then like condone them to like eternal punishment? And John, what do you tend to, to stand on the spectrum? Oh, um, I, I have a very moderate view of it's a mystery. John. And ultimately, <laughs> oh, there are a lot of mysteries. Oh, if, yeah, you're, if you're an avid follower of this podcast, you know that John doesn't like taking hard stances. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of mysteries. I, I think there's, there are certain things that our human minds cannot comprehend. And I think God being outside, like God enacting his will in humanity and God being outside time and space are unknown variables that we are trying to factor into our human minds, understanding this spectrum of yeah. free will and predestination, right? And I think ultimately there is a lot to be gained in marveling the mystery of it, right? There are biblical passages that speak to the fact that not one of the sheep will be lost ex uh, except for, you know, X, Y, and Z, or like the, the fact that, um, um, once someone is in God's hands, no one can take him from it. So there's so many of these passages even speak to like the perseverance of the saints, for instance. Uh, but then there's also passages talking about people falling away. Uh, and so I think the, the way to look at it is, is saying, Hey, some of this may not be as concrete as we humans want it to be because yeah. we just aren't capable of that. So I know it, it sounds like I'm a very moderate viewpoint, but I, I think I have some legitimacy here, um, for, for, to stand for moderacy. No, I think that's a, a good instinct, a good way to avoid being burned back in the day. Because you only really got burned if you were, like, taking a hard stance. If you just said, like, oh, it's a mystery, you might get away with, like, life in prison or something. So what I hear <laughs> is that we're, we're burning Alex at the stake tonight. Is that what I hear? Um, we might be. We might be. Oh, so I guess we seem to almost all kind of be in agreement here. Maybe I'll just take the no free will side just to spice things up. But um, Guess you can't become a Catholic then. No, so Catholics would be almost the strongest defenders of free will, basically, hmm. because it's actually Calvinism, which is the strictest on like predestination and free will. And one of the things I wanted to say, which to the mystery point, was something I've enjoyed like wrestling with a lot of these issues um, has been like the way that we should come to conclusions is not by like what seems right to us, but by like looking at the scriptures looking at what has God said and seeing what is true. And then if you can find a solution that matches with two things that are true. So for example, we know that God's omnipotent. We know that he knows probably who's going to be in heaven. And we know that there is an immense responsibility on us for our sin, right? Um, so like human responsibility for sin and God's omnipotence are both true, right? So it doesn't really matter how I figure that out. If I'm going to like say lean to super the free will side or lean a little more against it, if I'm able to hold the two clear things in, in my hand, then that's the way to come to like a multitude of acceptable conclusions, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's really wise, uh, JD. We're, we're running short on time here, but I am curious. We've been talking this, basically this entire podcast about very deep theological topics and one who's listening who may not be as just personally invested in these as we are may wonder, like, why does it matter? Why can't you just, like, love others? If, if we didn't get so hung up on these issues, uh, then Christian, Christianity would be a better place. Why has this been important to you, and why do you think it's important for all Christians to be evaluating these topics? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and that's something I really 
wanted to establish before I even looked at any of these things because I didn't want to have an attitude of desperation where I felt like, wow, I need to figure this out now, now, now. I, like, early on decided, look, I need to investigate from a place of security. God gives us peace and he saves us so that we can pursue him, right? We don't have to pursue him to get our peace. He gives it to us now before we have anything figured out. And I think improving your theology, thinking about what's right, to me, it's just a way of, of pursuing God. The same way that you would go to church or do a kind thing for your roommate or do anything. To me, it's just a way to, to love God better, know God better. So it's a response to his love. And I think people do get too heated about things because it's like, that's not the point. The point's not to have perfect theology. You even wanting to improve your theology is a gift from God that you only have because he loved you and put that desire in your heart, right? Like, so I do think it's important not to over-prioritize it. Um, and theological conversations of these types should probably only be among fellow believers. I don't think you need to be rating your, like... And that's why we're putting it out on Spotify for all the world to listen to. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, but no, any Christian's first priority should be able to explain the gospel, not explain TULIP or explain why you're against TULIP. Well, J.D., Really appreciate, like, I think all of the, like, nuance. We just kind of dove into some theological discussion. So thank you, J.D. Thank you, listener, for continuing listening here. J.D., one of the things that we always do on these podcasts is provide a soapbox. Mm. Just mm. 40 seconds of whatever you want to talk about. We promise not to interrupt you unless you say something really heretical, and then we'll probably jump in. But and burn them at the stake. <laughs> and burn them at the stake. Yeah. Perfect. So try to stay as moderate as you can with the soapbox, and floor is yours. Wow. Thank you for the soapbox. I'm gonna start with talking about Tesla. Tesla is valued at three times the market cap of the largest auto manufacturer, Toyota, who produces 20 times as many cars and has 20 times the amount of revenue, profits exponentially higher. And yet Tesla is three times the size of Toyota and is greater than like a lot of the largest auto manufacturers combined. And they produce almost no cars. It's the most overvalued stock to ever exist. I can't believe it's so high. I sold it soft. I sold it freshman year of college because I thought it was overvalued. And I believe oh it was. God. I believe it was I'm overvalued so sorry, freshman yes. year of college. And the market's crazy. This is the most overvalued, inflated market we've ever seen. The P.E. ratios on companies, it's absurd. There's a crash coming. Bear, bear, bear. Wow. Bringing the real issues to us. I believe a crash has already started coming. Stock market down 3 or 4% in the past couple of days. J.D., my heart rate went up just hearing your rant there. And uh, <clears throat> I think I'm going to need to go take a Pepto-Bismol before. <laughs> Tesla could be cut in half and still be overvalued. Oh wow! Okay. Wow. That's Hot take. A little little uh, audio clip for the uh, for the ages, right? Well, this podcast does have a lot of influence in the market, so yeah. we should be seeing a, a, a quick drop in Tesla over the maybe the next week or so. Uh -huh. Completely unrelated to those alpha forces. sites analysts going to pick this up and just start running with it. Yeah. Um, folks, this has been a wonderful time, JD. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure, folks. Uh, if you reach out to JD, he can uh, pray to the saints for you, maybe give you some indulgences to buy, as he will shortly be a Catholic. Exactly. <laughs> Next time we have you on, we'll, uh, we'll have to ask you how that journey is going. For JD, sure. JD, uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk later. Adios. Adios.